Welcome to today's uh, roundtable discussion about race. Um, last time we wouldn't say it was in North America. Um, well, we weren't sure if it was in America, North America, but we're going to start with um, with a bang regarding that. Um, I decided that the correct term for um, Mexican Americans, Mexicans, uh, anybody from uh, South and Central America should be uh, Latin America. Latin American instead of Latino, because Latino has actually no meaning to to anybody. Like Latino means that the Spaniards were conquered by the Romans, and their language comes from them, and then that was inherited onto us. And then Latino, without saying they were American, you're actually going along with the racist ideology of splitting up the continent into two or three because the north the people from the north don't want to be associated with from, with the people from the south so i know that we always bring up controversial stuff but have you guys uh, heard that in europe there's only uh six six continents instead of uh seven that in north america they try to split up the continent to north and south america so like that you keep the people from the south in a different category or different section as compared to everywhere else in the world they just say and when you hear someone i'm an american they're actually saying i'm not a european so mexicans are americans argentinians are americans because we're all from the continent of america uh, but here they try to say the americas or whatever and what they're doing is they're making up something that is not even correct and they're claiming that and I realized that I was using the term incorrectly because I told someone I'm a first-generation American and I'm like no I'm not I'm a first-generation US citizen but I've always been an American because I was born in the Americas is that too much um, splitting hairs or does that make sense to you guys I think that's what Angela was saying, wasn't it, kind of last week or the last time? You were kind mm -hmm. of saying, like, America is, like, all one America. And I know, like, often you hear that with First Nations, everybody's, like, our cousin, you know? If they're, like, from the Americas, we talk, like, in the cousinhood. If you're Indigenous to any area, like, South America, Central America, we're all cousins. Mm, I like that. So, and you're right, because when you're brought over, like even I've heard, like even tagging America onto that, you know, like that can have a negative connotation, I feel like, too. Like not everybody wants to be coined an American if you come from like another place, right? So then there's like, that's where that distinguishing factor now comes in. Like our, if you say just the generic, you're Latin, now you, you kind of lose a bit of that area, which then loses a bit of, but not a bit, loses the culture of the area, I would think. In one conversation, Gerald, you mentioned the idea of African-Americans um, and people who are descendants of slaves in the, in the U.S. Uh, having a culture on themselves and feeling that, um, that that needs to be preserved as compared to being lumped with other groups like do Caribbean and Afro-Latinos, are they still part of, of your community or are they a different subsection? Or like is being black a limited to a particular area of the world or do you have like a brotherhood among all black people but then you're sectioned off in regions? Well, I was, I was speaking in general terms um, with regard to ADOS and their American descendants of slavery, of, of descendants of slaves. Um, I wasn't, I think that the connection is there between uh, Africans that ended up in the Caribbean and um, America as uh, at the States as well here. Um, so I wouldn't say that there isn't, they're part of the African diaspora. And I wouldn't say that, um, that there is zero connection, but I think we have our own culture here. There's, you know, black culture. There's a unique culture here that's somewhat different than um, than theirs, and I think that that's um, 
that's okay. You know, I think that we that we unfortunately here in the states sometimes get lumped into this big. There's a tendency to lump people into uh, under one umbrella because it makes it easier just to deal with all of all of them in a certain way. Uh, you kind of hinted at that, or we had a conversation about that um, conversations before when we talked about people being surprised at the way that um, folks from the so-called Latinx community <laughs> uh, voted in this uh, this past election, that they were surprised that, that there was so much support from some communities for Trump versus others. And I think that, that um, we, we can see that also uh, happening um, with the way that um, people of color are lumped together under that umbrella as well. You know, we've got, we, I, I think that there's a, we were pushed to kind of um, put everyone under this umbrella or say, if you've got one drop of, of black blood, you're black. <laughs> and, you know, that's a lot of people under that umbrella that just don't, don't fit. But I think culturally, there are probably lots of connections. That, but that, that was it. For our audience, um, the last show that we recorded was before the election, and this one's after. Well, so I know I have a big sigh of relief. Even though there's still a lot of problems, we, we don't have blatant disregard for people who are different or have different perspectives. Um, I was reading an article that was talking about how at one point there was more uh, African descendants or descendants of slaves in Mexico. There, there was some here uh, or certain areas of the U.S. And that was um, like it opened up something for me that in my ignorance, I used to say that there was no black people in Mexico. And what I meant is that I wasn't exposed to black people in Mexico because they were erased just like native people of Mexico. And what happened was that when they, they brought people to Mexico, they mixed with the native population. So in this article, they were saying that most Mexican people have some African descendants in their heritage. And that's something that is kept uh, hidden or even ignored because there's so much racism from the Spaniards. Um, and there's a couple of prominent um, families in Mexico who are black or are African descendants and they are famous or they're part of the entertainment uh, field. But it's always kind of like in the 1930s way where they're accepted because they're very talented and because they are unique in their features and the way they, they uh, perform or something like that. And that would be something uh, that I also wanted to discuss. Um, I feel that it's taken a lot for um, the African-American community to be um, accepted or uh, appreciated. And it has come because of the way that um, entertainment and Hollywood has been exploiting people or putting them in the forefront as um, and because of their talent, the same with um, with the sports field. Um, and then now that people are successful and, and rich, now they're kind of bringing up other people from their communities. Um, but I feel that the Latinos are kind of like lagging behind. They're like the next group. So you would see a movie in the 80s and there would be like a, a white guy who's like the main cop and then he has a buddy who's black. Now you see like a black cop who has a buddy who's Hispanic and there's you're still on the uh, consider on the, like the sidekick and not like the main liner um have you guys seen that and do they do that in um i have i'm only seen so many canadian movies or canadian shows but do they do they even consider like um native canadian actors or have them as like sidekick or someone who plays a role like the comedian or something like that or they're just not even I would say that they're not really represented very well. Like you, it, specialized movies, you know, and very much like more um, ones that don't make mainstream media, like mainstream in the movie theater or Netflix or something like this. It would be kind of put on by the government arts council or something like that, as opposed to anything mainstream it's very rare i think uh i know an actress just recently is the very first indigenous uh character in a hallmark movie and if you think about how many movies hallmark has made that's kind of insane 
and that's like being celebrated right now in our community that she's the first one. She comes, she comes from my area of BC. So I would say no. <laughs> no. We're not even the sidekick. We're not even like represented. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would back that up just from what I have experienced uh, recently. I remember it was a big talk because Indian horse became it was on netflix and it was it was a or something that was like wow like it's the same way it's like the sub the arts those that are committed to like having stories of not the dominant language being told but you have to seek it and it's definitely not anywhere near like the the token sidekick role or i would say that what i have seen has been actually the opposite i've seen quite quite a lot of that stereotypical misrepresentation that helps build the stereotypes of what an Indigenous community or a representative would be in a movie. Like, I still see that um, with great sadness, <laughs> like, <laughs> just watching that, you know, if, if there is a character, it's often in the lower end of town, on the edge, you know, to show how scary it is, or something within, and I'm talking about mainstream Canadian representation. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I've noticed more lately, but only because I'm looking. Um. Yeah, and Gerald, uh, yeah, I know that there was um, activism from um, black uh, sports figures and actors that kind of helped uh, the, the civil rights movement, like with Muhammad Ali and uh, Belafonte. And do you feel that that modern day um, like stars are taking a, a stand or only like Colin Kaepernick and maybe a couple other people and other people who maybe are, are too complacent or not speaking up when they, they should? I think that um, we've seen more activism in the from the sports community, more so than the mainstream kind of like singers and um, actors, things like that. Uh, I think that and I think that's a good thing. I think that they're asserting um, their power in the platform that they have in ways that they weren't able to before. Um, and that will probably continue, um, I think, because so many things have changed in the, in the sports field. Um, and a lot of, I mean, the with regard to Kaepernick, um, you know, the NFL has come back and said that they basically wish they had listened to him, that they had supported him, that he was right. Um, so I, I think that um, that legacy of, of activism from folks who have, you know, that you would say have made it uh, or who reached a certain amount of notoriety is pretty consistent. Uh, I don't know if they're funding the, the, this, the, this current movement or this current um, battle of, in the civil rights movement. I don't know if they're funding that this funding helping to fund the movement at the same level, but they're certainly uh, much more visible. And my, I want to go back to your question about um, the sidekick. Do you want to be the sidekick? Do you want your community <laughs> to play that role? I just, because I don't feel like anyone's embracing, anyone in Hollywood is embracing black folks necessarily. I think that a lot of it comes in waves, uh, but that sidekick role can really mess you up, your, your larger community up, if that's the only uh, experience that people have with seeing you, seeing you um, driving Miss Daisy or, <laughs> you know, doing some of this other stuff, being the magic, the magic Negro or the, you know, the, the first person killed in the horror movie, the, <laughs> you know, or you're just there for diversity. So I, I wonder, are those the stories that you want to see come from your community anyway? Or any of our we, we have to give props to Will Smith and uh, Jennifer Lopez because they actually like were headliners in many movies in the '90s and 2000s, and and looking back, it's like unbelievable that um, they people went and saw the movie because they were the 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 main character, and now I feel like it's kind of going back to yeah, that was enough. Now we need to go back to the psychic role. Um, you know, you think so? With, even with the demographics of the country changing 
it seems like there's going to be a larger audience for, you know, people who represent the, the largest segment of society, the larger segments of society. Lucy, what does Angela have to say? Mm, I was going to say that um, in that narrative, that storytelling of who is being represented and how I fully agree the sidekick, it's a support role which is where what I've noticed from white culture, that is where this, the, this, the, the, the non, like the disenfranchised, it's like, yeah, we'll put you as a sidekick. You're the support to our narrative. So even when I've seen recently since the BLM movement, I've seen and I've heard, I have friends that work in film, like all the stories, it's like one friend is working in film and he says he read the script and there is a black lead now but the story is still a white narrative. And he's wondering if it was actually written to have a white lead, but now it's 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 off trend to not have multiracial um, faces or, or being or people represented within whatever you're producing. So I know with me with fashion since BLM, every shoot I've done has had a person of color, but I would say that in the past, it was very specific usually a person of color that was instigating the model to be a person of color if i was working with someone um not of white population so i feel a lot of interest in i've just been really researching and looking into where the point of view of the story is it's like whose story is being told when a black body is being represented beside a white queen you know that's that's not actually representing a, a, a a black person it's representing the white need for you know help all about the center role so centering white identity what do you guys think about that <laughs> <laughs> with with fashion i think that you um there's always the risk that if you use a person a, a black person or a person of color as a prop that it can totally. it, it can backfire on you because if it's a group and there's one black man or one black woman, your eye is gonna go to them. <laughs> <laughs> well, am I wrong? I don't know. I, it seems to me that that's the way that it, it would work. You know, they would be the, they become the, the actually the focal point. And mm -hmm. you have other, other things with your staging to mm -hmm. kind of compete with that. <laughs> so yeah, it's, yeah, it's usually single models for, for selling the product. So it's it's a choice of, who they're targeting. Um, yeah, and very much tokenism, I think, otherwise. The group of white, usually one person of color, definitely one woman, you know, make sure everything's represented. But you're right, that's where the eye, the eye switches to the, yeah. Well, and in Canada, they have the same problem as they do in the US, where they're trying to tap into single white male dollars for whatever characters over there. Um, <laughs> so, water system or whatever you guys use um, so you know, there was this issue with you say you want to talk about gender um, this issue that a lot of the superheroes they have very um, voluptuous women and um, model looking people whatever and it's because young men are attracted to that and then they're the ones buying the movies or buying the merchandise and they say, well, we have to throw that in and we have to make it interesting for them. And that's how they would justify all the shows being sexist. And it's like, well, they're the ones that have money. If we did a all feminist thing, nobody would watch it because they their money they spend their money in other stuff. They don't spend it in stupid nonsense like, like these guys. So what do you guys think about the market um, pushing? So you were saying that as the population is growing, there's going to be more representation of minorities um, because the, they they see themselves represented in the characters. In all the Marvel movies, there's like two black guys and there's no Hispanic. Uh, there's a, There was a Native American in um, um, Suicide Squad and he got killed in the first two minutes. Um, and I think the original character wasn't even Native American. So, they, so it, it stung even more. To, to have him killed so quickly. Um, so what do you think about um, the way that the women are represented to to feed into that? Because if you're saying that if you have um, 
a black model and a white model, are they really selling that expensive clothes to 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 black people, or are they selling it to rich white kids, and they just put in a black person, so they it seems like they're not racist, but the majority of of that group might not even be able to buy that clothes. Well, this is where what I was thinking too is like there's a fine line. There is a fine line between. It's always about the intention, I guess, behind everything. Because even like what Angela is saying, like if you're putting a black actor at the forefront, but the story and the character was actually written for a white, just generic white like narrative then now you're actually talking about tokenism like if you're if you're only putting somebody in there just to be right or politically correct or it's what's expected of us then you're not actually advancing anything and reese witherspoon actually so going to the gender issue she has broached this with her own production company where she is talking about women telling female stories and she was told that that would be impossible like you, nobody wants to buy that. And she's like, women are 51% of the population. Yes, women want to see stories about women, you know? Like, so back to what you were saying, like, the thought process is so from the 1940s, like, women now make their own money. We can afford to go to a movie. I don't have to get my husband to say yes, that he can take me to a movie. I don't need to appeal to what he wants to watch. I can go, I can go to the VIP theater, pay for myself, buy my own food with my girlfriend and like watch what I want to watch. So the same thing goes when you talk about whether there's a need or a desire for stories told from a minority aspect when we're not actually the minority. We're only the minority when we group in all white cultures to one and then independently put us as our independent cultures. That's the only time that we can actually be considered minority. So of course there's people who wanna give their dollars to, to see representation, but the representation has to be written by and for that culture, you know? It can't be written by someone else from their viewpoint of what they think it's like to come from that cultural basis, you know? So the, the reality is, is that we have to have more people writing of of all kinds of different minor or ethnic ethnic groups, genders, uh, different sexual orientations, etc. Because it's the only way that you kind of get that st the actual story truly told. And now you're not using like in tokenism, where you're just like, let's make a black movie for being black. Well, what happens when somebody who's non-black makes that movie? It becomes a stereotype, right? Almost immediately. Because what kind of frame of reference can you write from? There was a lot of complaints about Amistad, the Steven Spielberg movie about um, the group of slaves that rebelled and that he was the one directing it. But I thought it was done um, appropriately and with respect. A movie that a lot of people love and they think that's like the best uh, movie that just came out is um, the Spider-Man. Uh, there's a Afro-Latino Spider-Man and... I watched it with my kids and I'm like, it has every single stereotype and every single way to minimize what they're trying to do. And I think that one of the writers was a Latino or something, but um, so he's a kid who ends up like the Fresh Prince. He ends up in a rich kid's uh, school. His dad is a cop. His mom is a nurse. Dad is black. The, the mom is Puerto Rican. And then he has a uncle who's a criminal. And then... Uh, Spider-Man comes from a different dimension and teach him how to be Spider-Man. So he's the sidekick to the real Spider-Man who's white and he's the Afro-Latino kid. And through the whole thing, he's like struggling. He doesn't know what to do. He's all like dorky and, and, um, and so even though it's like a journey of, of discovery and like a rite of passage, it shows that we need a lot of help that like someone can be self, I, uh, um, what is it, self? idealized or whatever, not actualized. Actualized, they can become their true selves without the help of a white um, savior or someone who, who mentor. And then, you know, and he lives in, in a dangerous neighborhood and his dad became a cop so he can be the proper person. 
and it's like it's just a hot mess but people think that it speaks to their experience but it's like sometimes like like you're never gonna make anybody happy but if you look at it it does kind of keep the stereotypes going so the problem is like if you if we haven't even gotten out of of the ghetto or the the area where they have um limited our resources and our opportunities how can we tell a story that it is more um mainstream or more uh universal when we still have all those issues so i see what you're saying is that if you have a like a black james bond who never struggled with being discriminated and he's just james bond but he's black it doesn't make any sense because now you have a, a british black guy who's just happens to be rich and famous and everybody loves him um there's been a couple of movies like that and i won't even get into it because they made me so mad but um <laughs> back to the subject um the this is just, the go ahead gerald no i just feel like the way that we're consuming media now is changing everyone uh, there are all these different platforms where you can like with specialized content that are kind of geared towards your whatever your community or population you might you know identify or associate yourself with and i think that's what's driving that ultimately is what's going to be driving the change the changes in the way that groups are represented because this is a transitional time i really feel like um uh it's one when the characters that you describe that fit into the formula where they just plug a, a, a person of color into this role those spaces this the they haven't changed the the space that that uh and i feel like it's still a white space primarily set up for a white audience but I think that what's coming now, uh, it's a space, all these spaces and platforms are being created that can really truly tell more robust stories about all kinds of people uh, that are closer to their lived experiences if, or that are, you know, like with the, the Black Panther, even if it's not, obviously a, that's a fantasy, but it's a, I think we're in this transitional time that we're going to see more robust stories. I guess that's really what I wanted to say. It's like the transition when there was, um, if you were reporting, this is a separate example. There was a time when there were no women in, that could go into the locker room to inter interview women, you know, reporters. But once there were women reporters in that space, the space had to change. It wasn't enough <laughs> just to have, you know, a woman reporter. Lots of things had to follow to change, and I think it's going to. Hollywood is catching up. Mm -hmm. They're figuring out if they don't, a lot of these independent uh, media makers are going to put them out of business. Yeah, uh, to carry on with that, when we were talking about representation in Canadian film, I wanted to say, on the surface, you know, Canada is quite connected to the United States. Like it's like the quiet version of a copycat um on the surface but then in the states and what i watch when i'm going on tv now the options i have are much greater if i want to watch lgbtq if i want to watch women's stories if i want to see multicultural stories like the the resources are there in spaces that they weren't there before so the 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 pull of who's actually like the media makers they just want money so who's watching and how do they feed that and I would say that gratefully the voices of, of those watching is being actually heard so that that need to have more representation be seen. It's, it's being taken out of the hands of that, the, the two, you know, Hollywood isn't quite the only ruler of the media world now. So I totally agree, Gerald, that it is changing and it's, and it's exciting to see the options that are starting to grow. Well, we're going to, uh, Get, uh, change the the tone of the conversation from serious to hilarious and sad. So, <laughs> <I'm talking> okay. <laughs> hilarious and sad. No what? <laughs> this is right before the election. That's, that's, that's expectational. <laughs> um, so right before the election, I have a neighbor and she wears a Beto T-shirt. You know, Beto uh, O'Rourke is is known as the the white guy who wants to be Mexican or he's an honorary Mexican. And then we have 
uh, Marco Rubio, who's like the, the Cuban who wants to be American or pretends to be uh, white or whatever. So when I saw my neighbor wearing a Beto shirt, I thought I knew she was cool because she was progressive and she supported a guy who, who likes Latinos from El Paso. Um, he'd ran for Senate and, and lost or whatever. So just casually, I was talking to her about what's going on with, with the election and stuff like that. And she said something that like baffled me. She said, I have this friend and she's a Republican and we agree on every issue other than immigration. And I was like, oh, okay. And then she said, without any bones or issues, she said, my friend's problem is that she thinks there's too many Mexicans in Houston or in Texas. And I just couldn't believe it. She said it in front of my daughter, who uh, we're building up a Latino identity or Latin American identity, um, going back to the beginning of the show. And it's this idea that like the, I don't know if it was the Danish or who who are the people from uh, uh, South Africa? They, what were oh, they Africa. like? No, but like the original people, the Dutch, Dutch they go to yeah. Africa and then they complain there's too many Africans. And how can someone be so ignorant that moves to Texas and they say there's too many Mexicans? When, <laughs> when Texas was part was of Mexico, um, the majority of the cities have Spanish names. It's like a port city where there's a lot of work, so a lot of immigrants come. So you live in like the ant pile and you're complaining there's too many ants. And it just baffles that it's, so this is the Trump factor for me is that it's acceptable to hold that position. It's just a different position. So her progressive friend says, oh, we're best buds. We have everything in common, but she hates people from Mexico and she doesn't want them around. And and it's like, you might, like there, it used to be a time when people could say that in closed doors or among their friends. Yeah, they need to get rid of them, you know, ship them away or whatever. Now it's like, you can just say it. There's to too many face. Mexicans. And then to my face, <laughs> so she's like repeating it, but she didn't say it, she's repeating it. But she's like talking to the horse and it's like like it just baffles the mind like i've said a couple of things here and there but uh you know we we know about the thing of passing as white so if i say you know white people are losing it or something like that people stare at me and like how dare you you're a mexican how can you say that but like i was telling you guys that there's different categories so in mexico if you're light-skinned you're considered white but then when you come to America, you're no longer white, now you're a Mexican, so it's very complicated. But, but going back to this issue where you can just blatantly say, I know someone who finds your people repugnant and that your people need to go. And it's like, how is that a thing? Like, like, I know that in Germany they say, you know, we don't like Jews, get rid of them. Or in Africa, South Africa, we just want a population where there's no black people. We just want to be all around our own people and they can go do their thing somewhere else. So it's like, how is that acceptable? How, how are we supposed to tolerate that type of uh, mentality? And then it's part of the conversation. So um, is that like a vestige of this uh, colonialism and lack of understanding of even history and population um, like, um, migration and stuff like that, that you're just going to assume that wherever you're at, your people need to be in control and everybody else needs to like get out of, the, of their face? Or is it part of the, the Trump factor and the normalization of racism where <coughs> you can just say, uh, if I'm driving down the street and I see someone I don't like, uh, they shouldn't be here, they should go back or whatever. Um, what do you guys think? Like, do you have the same kind of like, um, like horrible reaction to, to hear someone be that foolish and, and inappropriate. Um, well, I know as a hairdresser that people will always talk to you as if you're on the same page as them. So there's like, I think uh, as human nature, we, we kind of go through the world assuming everybody 
comes from the same place we do, you know, which is why we can project ourselves onto other people or whatever. So I think there's a little bit of that, but it also leads to the normalization of one culture, right? Where everything that's not that culture is different and abnormal. So this is the whole like term white supremacy, which like gets misused harshly, but it really is just about the dominant culture. And this is what's normalized and therefore like everything else is deemed different. So up for conversation, right? That's why cultural appropriation can happen because it's deemed different. And so I want to appreciate that thing that's different as opposed to, and like, so I'm appreciating it, not appropriating it because it's different. Well, that's only different because one culture has deemed itself the normal and that's the so-called dominant culture that's supposed to blanket all cultures, you know? So therefore we should, all, we can all have that conversation. We can just have the conversation out in the open, which I find just equally as appalling. I think it's wild that somebody from another culture can like assume so much in a conversation and act like they can just have a conversation about it. Like, like it, it and I, I have a hard time even like putting words to it, but like they're hypothesizing and saying, let me deem whether this is an actuality or not. So it's like, you know, it's not a reality to them. They're just sort of, hmm, let's just hypothesize on this for a minute. You know, I find it wildly crazy to me as well. I'm with you. <laughs> How about you, Daryl? What do you think? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I would say, thinking back to a conversation that we had way back months ago uh, about sharing space, information, resources, and power with black folks, this country has had always had a problem doing that. And so I kind of feel like what's happening now, um, and I don't know if it's necessarily because of Trump or just because of uh, racism, as people have historically experienced experienced it in, in America is much more open and widespread. But I think we're renegotiating this idea of who uh, has access to public space. You know, who can be in your community? Who can walk down the street? There, there are lots of folks. They don't, they're not used to seeing black. I'm talking about blacks specifically. You know, and there are areas that you just you're not supposed to be in. That's that people, and it's also, I think we have to recognize that um, it's like you have to walk two roads. You have to walk that road where you know you're meeting a person where they are with wherever, you know, where they are with their level of understanding about differences and culture and, and history. And you want to, you don't want to, um, you don't want to shut them down or give them a uh, reason to even dig deeper into this attitude that they have towards um, you or other people of color. But at the same time, you you don't want to let that kind of behavior pass. You want to confront the, what they're saying. So I, I just feel like as a as a black male, I'm, I wouldn't if someone had said something like that to me, it would kind of be a yeah, whatever. And then I would have moved on. Um, it, or it would have been a, you know, let me take the time. If, if I felt it was important to take the time to try and educate that person, I would. But I know that there are just some people who are never going to embrace folks that are different from them. They're not going to do it. They don't feel bad about your suffering or your uh, lived experiences, you know, uh, as a result of what they say and kinds of things they say and do. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. Are you asking if is are, is it becoming normalized, and is that a good or good thing? Or well, no, I, I like your your. I was watching the, the there's a documentary called um, um what is it? Sorry, it's about people in movies uh, representing indigenous people, and they they call it um. The movie's called uh, The Good Engine. It's what? Are you yeah, serious? It was made by, by a Native American activist, and it's about how they had all these people, um, Marlon Brando and all these people uh, in in brown face uh, portraying Native Americans because they say they claim they couldn't find any. That they went around and, they couldn't, and I guess they didn't want to have a Mexican play an indigenous person. 
Um, they even went as far as having Italians play Mexicans when they were making spaghetti westerns. But back to the subject, uh, there's the fragility, uh, this is what the, the filmmaker said, fragility is a privilege that all the people, and we're going to talk about microaggressions and all that, that the people who can be offended and can be um, upset and the social justice warriors, that that's from a place of privilege. That um, indigenous people and African-Americans and, and other groups, they have to be strong and they have to kind of let it uh, pass because if not, it would tear them apart. So the part of the resilience of the minority population is to um, to not let things get under your skin because it would uh, be too much to, to handle. So um, that to survive in the world, you have to be um, tough skin and you have to um, kind of rise above people's stupidity. So I like what you're saying that there's some people that you're just not going to waste your time, but it takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of... Um, boldness to to be like wait a second that was like awful and and i don't appreciate it and let me tell you why and you know people feel um you know then they get offended or they feel uncomfortable and then so it's and then they tell you you have a, a chip on your shoulder or in my case a tortilla chip on my shoulder um that's an old joke of mine so, <laughs> so uh so you just let it go and be like you know what you know move on but if you let it keep happening, then people think it's okay. And that's why I have a lot of problems with Latino comedians that all they do is joke about getting deported and all they joke about is uh, their mom hitting them with a with a um, sandal and all the stupid stuff that they showed in uh, in the movie Coco and other places where they, they play into the stereotypes and they try to like turn it around and it actually doesn't do anything. It's just... It's cheap shots against yourself. Um, so, um, so I don't know. So I just think that there has to be um, a bigger conversation, and we're having the conversation, and a lot of the people are not. Uh, I remember um, I was working catering at a party at a rich neighborhood, and it was when um, Trump called uh, Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas, and I was just hanging out, like trying to listen to what the rich people were saying. It was like a Christmas party. And one of the kids started like Pocahontas this and Pocahontas that for no reason. And it was it was like normalized. And now he could use it and throw it out and his hatred of this woman. Um, and they can just say, well, she's terrible. I don't like her, whatever. Now they have to use the racial epithet to uh, put her down that the other jerk already said it's OK. So um, so I feel that it takes a lot of work to kind of get, get people out of that a space where now they have permission to be ignorant and abusive. What do you think, Angela? Oh, <laughs> I was just going to uh, jump on the article world tying in nicely because when you were sharing, David, about that experience of, of I'm assuming this is a horrible assumption, the, the friend that or the colleague that was talking to you about her um, friend that doesn't like too many Mexicans. Was that the woman that was speaking to you? Was she a white woman? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And for me, that's like, that's that woman taking, she should have talked to that other friend. That's her job to say, I don't, you know, she's taking that and putting it on you saying, now you have to hear that and teach me what I need to do to, you know, oh, I'm going to share it. It's, it's, it's of all the reading and the learning I've been doing lately. It's that awareness in the article you sent of when discussions are being had within the community that is ostracizing another community or, or disempowering a community through microaggressions, like that's not even a microaggression, but something. It's, it's me. I have friends around me that are like radicals, they're working at change, and then they'll say something that's so tiny but so. <laughs> and when I when I try and discuss it, I'm oh Angela, you're always just trying. It's just so small. It's just this thing, and it's like it's not. <laughs> and that's that privilege of to you it seems small, but so having that courage within the community that is being 
I guess in power, like in the position of power, without even having that knowledge of what it is to be abusive through repetition. Like I've learned that as being a gender, as being woman, I've had so much abuse just through repetition of abusive acts. Like making a joke about it repeats it. It's still here. You're saying it's okay. You're normalizing it. So I have empathy with with what it is when you are at that dinner party, when like what you were saying, what used to be done behind closed doors unfortunately i'm at that closed door and and having to to deal with even within the empowerment of like well i'm a woman so when that white man says that how safe is it to respond to that like or even just male like that needs to change that structure of of silencing when you've heard it or bringing it to you to try and say hey you know, doesn't that suck? Because <laughs> it's 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 not taking ownership for for when, what you've received. It's trying to give it to you instead. Like I, anyway, I don't know if you felt like that, but that's what I see when I hear that story. I get infuriated that 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 step forward of being aware of the power of the words you're saying, even if you think you're being a supporter. That's being you're not being empathic. You're not thinking about what it is to be in the position of hearing you say that to somebody. It's it it can bring up things for you that d does not bring up for her, you know. So, is that is that an incorrect like if if what 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 I just said what does that make you feel like like? Well, it kind of makes me makes me think about like the thing of passing as white or people see you and they assume things. So maybe she she thought I would agree with her. Like that's the problem is like, sometimes people throw things out to see what you say. And then if I started saying, yeah, you know, there is too many Mexicans, like I wish they would all go back. I can stay because I'm cool. They all can go. Then then you're like part of the in crowd. And mm -hmm. I don't know if you can be a double agent and kind of trick people or something like, I don't know. But it's just- um, Your friend's the one that was saying there's too many Mexicans? No, I was saying that if I okay. did say that, like there yes. was a said, like you could say, well, it's a test, but yeah. people are not aware. And, and the thing is, and, and it go back to what Gerald was saying is like, you can't be the thought police. And, and this is where the social justice warriors uh, think they're doing a great service, calling out every microaggression and every Twitter thing they don't like and trying to cancel everybody out. They think that by sitting back in their, in their chairs, complaining that that's going to change the world. And what they're actually doing is at times they're actually radicalizing people more because then they mm -hmm. use that as an excuse. They say like, oh, because you're such a uh, whiny person, then now I'm going to do it more. And that just shows that you're fragile and that you're a snowflake or whatever. So, um, but when you're having these like serious conversations with people that you love and you're challenging them to not be so dismissive of the people or so judgmental, that's where it's really painful and it's really... If you tell a stranger, hey, stop being a jackass, what is that going to do? Like, yeah. well, when you're telling people that you care about, and I hate that you're in that position, Angela, that you're the one who has to bring it up all the time, and then you become the target. Um, I know that um, in the civil rights movement, there was people who were risking their lives to um, to represent themselves as individuals or communities, and then everybody else tell them, you know, I need to get out of Dodge. It's not your fight. Why are you getting involved? And I have a friend who started the podcast with me who went to one of the protests um, against uh, the And I thought he was going to get killed because I was worried about how bad these security forces they have are. And that him not being uh, of native descent, that he was going to stick out and then they were going to beat him up even more or that he would be seen as just this hippie white kid uh, causing trouble, whatever. So I was being protective of him. And and then it's like, well, unless we get kind of like Martin Luther King did, where he got rabbis and nuns and different people to come with him, then they wouldn't beat all of them up because they look really bad. When it was just black people, then nobody complained. But once you got other people to support, then it became a more noticeable attack against humanity. Um, do you guys want to discuss um, the other topics that we brought up during our, our pre-conversation, such as um, this, like pronouncing people's names properly? Um, 
Cheryl, can you tell us about the article and, and how is that, um, what is the author saying regarding that? Sure, I mean, I shared the article because um, I knew we were gonna talk a little bit about the controversy around the use of the term Latin, Latinx. And I just think that there's this, um, the, the author basically said that it's important to take the time to pronounce your students' names properly because it's a name is so closely tied to your identity. It's tied to your culture. It's tied to the intentions of your parents. And for someone to feel that they can just, they, that, that they don't have to take the time to learn the, a child's name, um, it's very disrespectful. And particularly depending on the, uh, you know, who you are as a, t as, as, as a, t as a teacher. Um, but I thought that it was interesting because when I read another article that I didn't share, which I had about the history of the uh, Latinx, Latinx word, uh, excuse me, uh, the term Latinx. And I think a lot of times when people self give, get, um, there, I think that there hasn't always been the language for the way that people navigate through their lives, their experiences. So when you, when you hear terms like uh, cisgendered and, uh, you know, Latinx, Latinx <clears throat> excuse me, there are lots of, I mean, I'm an old dude. I'm trying to keep up with all the new terms, this new language for things um, so that I can better understand the way, you know, people's lived experiences. And so the article basically in it, uh, said that it's important to take the time to do that, particularly if you're a white teacher and you're dealing with black students, um, because you could um, be signaling um, uh, a, a dismissal of their humanity and not really realize it. Uh, or you could, their parents might interpret uh, your decision to rename, you know, uh, their child, you know, to a name that, that, that's more convenient for you as you not caring enough about their, their child to take the time to really to get to know them as an individual or fully see them. Uh, another way of saying all of that is, is just that, you know, when, um, if we don't take the time to really know each other, then we're never going to be able to express or ex fully experience our own humanity. That's, it's just, that's how it works. If we're, especially if we're we're using language that um, and, and labeling people and boxing them and putting them in categories that they haven't um, put, uh, that they haven't uh, embraced themselves. So I'll I'll end it there because I'm starting to stutter a little bit. No, and you know we have to like deconstruct the whole issue with Latinx and. The Latino community is very complicated, and what I want is for people to have some, you know, a lot of people use Christianese terms, so they say, well, have some grace, understand people and give them some mercy or some uh, ability to still be in the process of growth. So in the Latino community, um, there's, there's taboos, there's superstition, there's um, traditionalist views, and what I don't want for my children is to say that why liberal culture is better than traditionalist uh, Latino culture. Because once you start doing that, you're back to the colonial thing. And you can say that the traditionalist Latino culture is colonial, but then you look at different groups throughout um, the world and they have the, the Orthodox community, like the, the staunch traditionalists, and then you have the more progressive among all different groups. So the Latino community being so traditionalist, and this is the, the Trump factor again, he played into traditionalist fears and traditionalist views to get all the people from El Paso to vote for him and the border uh, region, to get a lot of the Cubans to vote for him because they have these views about pro-life and pro-family and all these things. And for someone to, you know, a European American to say, well, that's a bunch of crap. I don't want nothing to do with that. We're all progressive and everybody needs to get on the boat. That is, a form of, um, I don't know if it's like moral colonialism or, or suppressing of people's heart-held beliefs. Because now you're saying that what people 
find as, as a source of strength or so, source of family unity, whatever, that all that stuff needs to go away. That everybody needs to be open to everything and everyone and have all kinds of um, willingness to, um, to, to not be secluded in their own ways of thinking. So the Latinx um, term is uh, active term to accept the transgender community or the LGBT community. And it's kind of like sticking into the face of the Latino community who's very anti-LGBT. So then the question is, well, shouldn't you do that on every front? Shouldn't it be the, the black X and the white X and the every X? Because the X represents that you're not going to call someone a Latino or a Latina. You're going to call them a Latin X because they could be from either gender or from the new ways of looking at um, genders and sexuality so that's where the term comes from what i know and then to go back and 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 share that with to start defining people as that when they've it might not feel that that's the right way to be identified that's where it, it, it's created conflict so there was like a senator or somebody that they said you need to stop using that term because when you go to latino community you go to inner city and you say, you know, what race are you? And you put Latin X, it doesn't mean anything to them. Or it even has like a like a negative um, reaction. Is that what you read in the article, Gerald? Did it talk about that? That it was a, a progressive effort to bring about more acceptance? Uh, or was there an, another way to, to define the term? Um. They, the, the article did cover that in, in saying that it created a space for the lived experiences of, of folks who are part of the Latino community, but they weren't able to fully communicate who they are because the language didn't allow it. There was, you know, and so it's like with anything, it created that space for themselves. And it's my understanding that the the X actually has been is much broader. That it means that you're you're under the umbrella, but you're lots of things. It's and it's it's more a tailored individual's personal identity. So yeah, that's that's the take that I that I got from the article that I read. But I'm I'm curious to know, do you guys the the anger around the word is confusing to me because I want to know where else can folks that are part of this community go to raise issues about, um, you know not feeling that they're fully a part of, you know, feeling that, you know, there's no language. If you're feeling something, there's no language for it. <laughs> that's a weird place to be. Does it, am I sounding crazy? Does it? Well, I think that's you know, the problem. You, I think it's because there is a gendered language there. So like there is no need to put black X because black is just not gendered. Whereas Latina and Latino is a gendered um title you know so that's why they don't feel like they're part of it if you're lgbtq or you you're undefined or you don't gender yourself or whatever they they don't feel included when it's latina or latino that literally just came to me as we were having this discussion by the way so <laughs> I don't, like there isn't a need for it anywhere else unless you're talking about a gendered language right mm-hmm I don't know. You've got. I got a light bulb when you when you said that. I'm sorry to jump in. Did, sure. I didn't. Did, I didn't interrupt you, Angela. Were you? Go ahead. No, no, no I got a light bulb because, for example, just the light when the black community came up with Black Lives, and the response was, "All Black Lives Matter." That's saying that's a huge, that's an even bigger space because the, the group that said it was the LGBT trans community matters, too. So when folks from that community get killed, be as upset about it as you are about black males that are killed. When black women are killed, be upset about that as much as you are about. So all black lives matter. And, it, and at the same time, it was, a, it was they were making a statement to um, the black community, but also to the larger uh, white community and saying, all of us, we're, ditto what they said with us and with us being centered. And I think that um, that was, so I think it can happen in language 
in, in languages that aren't gendered, but it's the status of the person maybe that has that that shapes um, how far this message can go or how far the space that they're creating with the language can go.